Former Missouri Governor Eric Greitens has kept a low profile since resigning in the middle of 2018. But after a Missouri Ethics Commission decision fined his campaign but found that the GOP official committed no wrongdoing himself, Greitens has roared back into public view, spurring speculation that he may be making a political comeback at some point. On the latest episode of Politically Speaking, St. Louis Public Radio's Julie O'Donohue and I talk about whether Greitens can resurrect his tattered political career. We also talk with St. Louis Public Radio Statehouse reporter Jacqueline Driscoll about some of the big issues that Jefferson City lawmakers tackled this week. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision, and everybody in the room looks like you. You need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and I'm here in studio with my co-host. Jason Rosenbaum. And we are connected to our Jefferson City correspondent, Jacqueline Driscoll. Okay, this week we're talking all about state news, basically, except for our very final segment where well, we go to Illinois. It's still state news. It's just another state news. That, that's, that is true. So let's talk about the, the situation with the Medicaid rolls. So for, I think it's been about a year there's been a large drop in the Medicaid rolls in Missouri. And of particular concern is that a lot of children have been dropping off of Medicaid in Missouri. And the Democrats have been raising alarms about this for quite some time. Uh, the Republicans for a while offered a few different explanations that we'll get into later. But recently, they've kind of changed their story in terms of why people may be coming off the Medicaid rolls. Jacqueline, what are you hearing about why people may be coming off the Medicaid rolls now as opposed to what the Republicans were saying previously? Well, to address that, we probably should say, um, you know, previously the Republicans were saying that people were dropping off the Medicaid rolls because our economy was better in Missouri, right? Or that um, they did away with the mandatory uh, registration for the uh, ACA. Um, But now they're saying that we're seeing this particular drop specifically with children because um, parents, when their incomes change, say they're a seasonal employee, or you know, or they or they're an employee where their their uh, wage fluctuates recently, or several times throughout the year, they their status changes, so their entire family will be removed from the Medicaid rolls, even when the children are still eligible. And the Republicans are recognizing that this is the issue. Um, one of the issues, again, that the Democrats are hoping to fix is when these parents get dropped from the Medicaid rolls, they get this letter sent to them that says, you no longer qualify for Medicaid coverage. And it doesn't say your children still qualify, so you need to go through the effort of filling out the paperwork and getting them 
um, back on the rolls, right? So parents, Democrats are worried parents didn't know. And if children are still eligible, they're saying that the state needs to let them know and they need to help them and try to simplify this process of making sure that the children who are still eligible can still receive their Medicaid coverage. Right. I think it's, uh, in case it's not obvious, um, parents, the threshold, the income threshold is lower for adults qualifying for Medicaid. So you, uh, than a child. So you could not qualify for Medicaid. You could be making too much money for yourself to qualify for Medicaid, but your child could still qualify because you don't reach the higher income threshold that would mean that you have to find private insurance for your child. So there are some people who don't qualify for Medicaid, but their children do, and and it doesn't seem like it's obvious, or it seems like the state is removing people when the parents may be uh, across the threshold that that makes them not qualify for Medicaid. Am I understanding that right? Right. And and the Democrats have filed some legislation to try to alleviate this in the process. Um, Representative Sarah Unsicker has a bill that actually has a, a similar bill filed by a Republican. So it does have Republican support that would essentially say any child who qualifies for this coverage would stay eligible for a full year before they need to, um, you know, make sure that they are still eligible. So it's this continuous coverage for a year. So we're not seeing um so many kids getting removed um, so swiftly, and then parents are having to go through the struggle of reapplying them. So that's one measure that they're trying to help alleviate this problem with. One thing that also I've heard from the Republican side is there's legislation from Representative Mary Elizabeth Coleman about reducing the amount of paperwork that you have to fill out to, I guess, either qualify for Medicaid or reapply for Medicaid. What have you heard about that, and what has been the Democratic reaction to that idea? Yeah, they're very energized by this. They also, I mean, this is something that Coleman is working on with the Democrats. Um, So they are excited about this. They've talked about it in the press conference that they had earlier this week. Um, And, you know, Medicaid, I mean, healthcare in general is really confusing. I feel like I'm a very intelligent person. I don't want to toot my horn too much, but I feel like I could handle it. But healthcare is confusing. Medicaid is confusing. The whole process of signing up for it has been really hard for people. Um, So simplifying this process is something that they're really hopeful will get the support of the majority party and they can get it passed. I want to go back a little bit to the two previous explanations the Republicans were using for this, because the explanations even at the time I don't want to say they didn't pass the smell test but there were some questions about whether what they were saying at the time the previous explanations really made a whole lot of sense so here's uh, Representative David Wood who's the House member who sort of the point person on Medicaid for the House Republican leadership he's going to talk about why the economy the improving economy is the reason that people are maybe leaving the Medicaid program with their children. Uh, I can also tell you, you know, there are there is the economy because it is improving. Salaries are increasing. We have more people employed. You're going to find more people falling to where they're not qualifying for the program or they're moving to a spot in the program they want to go to their own insurance. All right. So 
I'm just going to say that I'm not an economist, but there were other economists saying at the time when the Republicans were saying, well, these people are coming off the Medicaid program, children are coming off the Medicaid program because we have an improving economy, that there didn't seem to be a whole lot of indicators in other parts of the Missouri economy that it was improving so much that a bunch of children would no longer need to be on the Medicaid program. And then the second explanation they gave, gave, which you, Jacqueline, went over, there was this change in the federal law that um, took away a tax penalty for not having health insurance. This is a change that affected all states nationally. And the Republicans were saying for months, well, this is the reason people are not enrolling their children in Medicaid anymore or keeping their children in Medicaid because they no longer have to pay a tax penalty uh, if they don't have health insurance. So there's no incentive for them to enroll in Medicaid. I mean, that that might be true, except for that happened nationwide, and Missouri saw the biggest drop in its Medicaid rolls for children of any state. So it didn't really it didn't really make sense that that was happening here and not elsewhere. Both of those explanations basically wouldn't have given the state any responsibility for this Medicaid drop. But the recent explanation by Republicans that maybe they're removing people from Medicaid, removing people and their children from Medicaid, and then there's this paperwork that people have to fill out to get back on Medicaid does put some responsibility on the state for this happening. I will point out that it was Representative Wood who brought this to light, saying that these there's about 60,000 kids who have been removed from Medicaid who should not have been. So, you know, he, he got the information and he did bring it to light. So I think that that was um, a good thing to point out as well. Another thing that happened this week is the House again passed a prescription drug monitoring program uh, bill for Missouri. Uh, Apparently, Jason, this has happened many times. Yes, it's aimed at stamping out opioid abuse uh, and and basically pharmacy shopping from people who are addicted to opioids. Right. So this has gone through the House many times, but it can't get through the Senate. And Missouri is the only state in the country that doesn't have this type of program. So Jacqueline, why don't you tell us, first tell us what what the bill does, and can you tell us a little bit about the debate around this bill? Sure. So first... Missouri does not have a statewide prescription drug monitoring program, but St. Louis County does cover a large portion of the state. I think it's over 80 percent now of the state is covered from the St. Louis County PDMP. So what this bill does is essentially expands that um, that program that we have in the state already um, and just makes it statewide. So doctors would essentially be able to see a person's history, the drug use history. So if there's a red flag in there, it's not going to allow a doctor to prescribe, continue prescribing opioids if if it may be a concern that this person is addicted to them. Um, some of the concerns that people do have here in, in the Missouri State House, uh, privacy concerns. They don't want to put any type of government list in place. And they also, there was also um, an argument by Representative Justin Hill, who said that this may actually increase the overdose deaths because... People who are addicted to opioids no longer can get their opioids, so now they're going to go to the black market where fentanyl or heroin is readily available, and those are more dangerous, and it it takes, you know, a very small amount of fentanyl to kill a person. So those are some of the the concerns that people have. Here's actually a clip of Representative Hill having an exchange with Representative Ron Hicks during the PDMP debate. See, a lot of this discussion is about egg before the chicken, right? Correct. We're trying to get to to addiction. 
that's assuming that addiction starts with opioids. But the data I just received from the state indicates that three times more people are overdosing on illicit drugs. Jacqueline, how did Representative Rader respond to some of these argumentations? I was personally really interested in her story um, when she spoke about it on the House floor because I didn't know. She came from a household that was where she grew up surrounded by drugs. She had a child very young. She then turned tried to turn that life around. She raised her child in a church, um, but then her child became addicted. And she said that on the on the house floor, she actually talked about rescuing her grandbaby from a meth lab. And so I can see why she's so impassioned by this and why this is something that she wants to make sure that she gets done and she introduces year after year. But she was very upset by the notion that a PDMP is going to increase the deaths that we're seeing. Um, and here is a clip from her on the floor as she is closing right before um, the House took a vote on this bill. This program allows our physicians and our medical professionals to get to the root of the problem, which is curbing addiction. We need to stop addiction. We want to prevent our kids, our family, from getting addicted in the first place. And to say that all of these states that have passed this and the Trump administration that is pushing for these are to blame for the deaths is reckless and ridiculous. And so if you can't win on the facts, you start saying ridiculous things on this floor. We are members of the House of Representatives. Yeah, Jacqueline, I watched some of this debate uh, because I was just interested in what was going on. I, I think like at least the portion I watched on Monday, I know you watched debate previously too. Uh, it's not just that they were saying that the prescription drug monitoring program might cause people to overdose. They actually were pointing to a specific person in St. Charles County. And I, I don't want to go into that too, too far, but uh, I, I found that a little bit astonishing. They were sort of saying that this person who had overdosed on fentanyl on street drugs, you know, maybe they would still be here if they had been able to go to a pharmacy to uh, fill their their Xanax need. to yeah, get Xanax. Yeah. That was the yeah. Um, and and I I found that a little bit um, astounding. I also wanted to say that this week I covered the St. Louis County Council meeting. As you had mentioned, the St. Louis County Prescription Drug Monitoring Program uh, has been expanded throughout the state. And the county executive, uh, in his comments at the beginning of the meeting, actually uh, praised the House for passing this bill and urged the state to pass a prescription drug monitoring program. He went out of his way to say that. Uh, Dr. Sam Page is an anesthesiologist, and he actually has a background in treating pain management, so he knows quite a bit about these issues. But as the bill heads to the Senate, Jacqueline, is there any expectation that the turnout might be different, that it might be able to get through? You know, not that I've heard. Um, even at the beginning of session, I spoke to House Speaker Elijah Har about this particular issue because we knew it was going to come back up. And he said, 
he predicted, you know, I think the House is going to pass this as it has year after year. I think it's going to hit the same roadblocks in the Senate. And talking to Senate leadership, they are committed to seeing this bill through. They are committed to getting it a hearing and then getting it on the floor. But what happens after that, they can't really control. They do expect some of the same roadblocks that particularly from the more conservative members, uh, um, the those in the conservative caucus, um, just really about this this notion of privacy concerns and in the government list. But I will say that Representative Holly Rader is, is tried to take steps to make this more um, appealing to some of those conservative members where there are protections in place that, you know, if you're on this list, it doesn't impact your Second Amendment rights. Um, so that I know that that was a, a previous concern that, you know, if, if people were flagged for possibly having an opioid addiction, then they would, you know, lose their rights to firearms. And I know that that's very important here in Missouri. So they are taking steps to make this more appealing. But again, a long winded way of saying it's going to hit similar roadblocks in in the Senate where it can you'll almost expect to see a filibuster. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Jason and I are going to talk about some of the recent developments surrounding former Governor Eric Greitens. All right. And we're back. And Jason is going to fill us in on what's been going on with former Governor Eric Greitens, who's been back in the news for about a week and a half at this point, right? Yes. Okay, Jason. So why don't you tell us initially what brought Governor Greitens back in the news? It was the culmination of a nearly 20-month investigation from the Missouri Ethics Commission into Greitens' campaign finances. And the upshot is his campaign was fined $178,000 for what I would classify as reporting violations. But that amount can be reduced to $38,000 if it's paid within a certain time frame. And there were a host of other allegations that were dismissed by the Missouri Ethics Commission. And a particular line in the consent order about how Greitens himself committed no wrongdoing and didn't know about the reporting violations has prompted the former governor to come out of seclusion and talk about how he's been, quote unquote, exonerated after all these months. Right. I feel like there was a lot of Governor Greitens and his supporters talking about exoneration. Is Do you think he's been exonerated, Jason? That particular question was posed to Greitens' attorney, Catherine Hannaway, about how can he claim exoneration when his campaign has been fined? This is what she had to say in a conference call with reporters. Look, the way the statute is is written in Missouri, candidates um, have knowledge. There, there is no knowledge requirement. The commission said he didn't know. He didn't know. So he, he is personally exonerated from any wrongdoing with respect to his campaign. I will just say that given the amount of things that were in this ethics complaint, I would argue that Greitens got off pretty easy. The two things that were in the consent order involved not disclosing that his campaign was coordinating with the LG PAC. And the coordination back in 2016 was not illegal because Missouri did not have campaign finance limits. And you could ask a PAC to do something against your opponent. You just had to disclose it in the campaign reports, which didn't happen. And they were required now to disclose that as an in-kind contribution and pay a fine comparable to the amount of money that the third-party ads were, which was about $98,000. The other thing was that there was some polling done that was paid for by a politically active nonprofit called A New Missouri. 
for Greitens for Missouri, and the MEC ruled that Greitens for Missouri had to pay for it. Yeah, I would say we also have to mention that exoneration is is quite the term. You know, none of this dealt with the more salacious parts of the Greitens scandal. Now, we got to remind people why the Greitens scandal happened in the first place. It's because before he was governor, Greitens engaged in an extramarital affair with a woman known as KS. KS accused him of sexual abuse as well as violence, which he strongly denies and continues to deny to this day. And it led to criminal charges that were ultimately dropped and also the near impeachment by the House of Representatives. So while this campaign finance chapter of his saga appears to be over now, I don't really think he's exonerated from a moral or personal level because there's still a lot of people that saw what he did in 2015 and still have a lot of unanswered questions about his conduct. Right. So the news about former Governor Eric Greitens didn't stop there. Then there was a resolution introduced in the House. And can you tell us what that's about? So this is kind of a subplot of the Greitens saga that has still not been resolved to this day. The the Greitens scandal was not exposed by the woman at the center of this chaos. It was exposed by her ex-husband who had recorded a conversation he had with her without her consent or knowledge and then aired it on KMOV. And the ex-husband was given $120,000 in cash for legal expenses. And it's been wondered for months, if not years, where that money actually came from. Uh, Scott Fawn, who's the publisher of the Missouri Times, was exposed as the person that delivered the cash money to Albert Watkins. But very few people believe that it was actually his money, despite that's what he said. And Representative Justin Hill put out a resolution calling for a federal investigation about where that money came from. And also House Majority Leader and soon-to-be House Speaker Rob Biscovo has also publicly said that it's important for people to find out where that money came from. Right. I believe he made clear they didn't think Scott Fahn was the source of the money, and he really wants to get to the bottom of who actually provided that those funds. Okay. So what does all of this mean for the former governor? Because now there's even more chatter. There was some before that he was going to try and make a comeback. So I think that with Greitens reemerging and, and doing interviews now on like conservative radio outlets, and elsewhere. It has stoked speculation that he is going to run against Governor Mike Parson and engage in a very entertaining but bloody GOP primary that could make it more difficult for Republicans to retain the governor's office. I'm not really sure that's going to happen. A couple of people that I've talked to are close to Greitens doubt that he's going to make another political run this year. But it's mainly to throw Parson off balance because there's no love loss between Parson and Greitens um, and possibly like resurrect his political stock for like 2022 or 2024. I, I, obviously, filing doesn't end until late March, so anything could happen. But that would be my best guess. So I find this this talk of the reemergence to be very interesting. And I think as a newcomer to Missouri, someone who wasn't here during the whole Greitens debacle and during his campaign for that matter or his rise i i just it's like hard for me to see as someone who's a newcomer how he makes a comeback i was thinking this morning about other political comebacks i know of and the ones i'm most intimately familiar with are 
Mayor Marion Barry in D.C. because I grew up there. Um, and Governor Edwin Edwards in Louisiana, who both had like pretty significant comebacks. But both of those people were like larger than life figures who loomed in their respective universes. Like Marion Barry got caught smoking crack on on tape uh, that ended his time in the mayor's office for a bit. And then he came back and ran again. But he had years and years of being like the top figure in D.C. politics. And what's confusing to me is Eric Greitens, I mean, I don't want to diminish what he did, but he was kind of a blip. It's not like he was around for a long time and is a beloved figure. Yeah, I think that that's a fair assessment. He does definitely still have passionate fans. And there is a segment of the Missouri Republican Party that feels like he was chased out of office wrongly. But here's the thing. There are still going to be people who are both Republicans and Democrats who look at the details of what he did before he was governor. And it's just going to be a complete non-starter to them if he if he comes back. And it wasn't just his personal behavior. His actions as governor really rankled a lot of Republicans in the legislature. Just his tone of being really aggressive and adversarial to the Republicans he needed to pass his agenda just was seen as just not a workable way of of being the chief executive. So he's just not going to have like a lot of institutional support if he comes back in 2020, 2022 or 2024. But I guess what he's banking on is that he has the, quote, grassroots support of people that still like him for various reasons to push him over the finish line. It's it's hard to say. A lot can happen in four years, but he definitely has some high hurdles to go over if he ever wants to win elective office again. Well, Jason, do you have anything final to say, at least for now, on uh, this topic? Yeah, I want to go back to the $120,000 for a second, because some of the people that have been broaching that issue have been broaching it as we need to like rehabilitate our clear Governor Greitens name. And I just want to mention, because I've mentioned this many times to the point where I feel like I'm banging my head against the wall, finding the source of the $120,000 is not about Eric Greitens, and it's not about rehabilitating his political career. This is about delivering accountability for KS, who was used against her will as a pawn for Greitens' political enemies and a vindictive ex-husband. And this ex-husband, it was seen in the House report, wanted to not only embarrass Greitens, but wanted to embarrass the mother of his kids. And if anyone deserves to know who is responsible for unleashing this completely hellish situation, it's chaos. And the people that did this, I don't really think deserve to be shielded in darkness. And I think that they need to be held accountable, not for Greitens, but just for the sake of transparency and just to bring a little peace to this woman that did not want this information out. Yeah, I also think it's important that we know what their motives are. Especially if the money was connected to an interest group that wanted Greitens out of office because they would financially benefit. Correct. I I think it's important for Missourians to know the whole story, even if it doesn't absolve Greitens of any of the things he did. I've never thought that finding the source of that money was about rehabilitating Eric Greitens. It was just about transparency and also about accountability for the people that nearly ruined this woman's life. All right. Well, I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll be talking about former Governor Eric Greitens. But we're going to move on to our segment called Show Me Something. And for that, we're going to bring Jacqueline Driscoll back on the show. 
And we've reached our final segment here on Politically Speaking. It's something we call Show Me Something. And this week, I get to make the recommendation, and I am recommending a podcast from WBZ that came out last year called Public Official A, which is on topic right now because it's all about Rod Blagojevich. So if you're like me and Jason and you really can't get enough of this coverage, I would highly recommend this podcast. One of the most interesting things about this podcast is that the entire first episode is about Rod Blagojevich's wife's efforts to get him a pardon from President Trump um, and her strategy for doing so. The podcast is done by WBZ. And the lead journalist on it is Dave McKinney, who used to work for the Chicago Sun-Times forever uh, and moved over to the public radio station, I think, a couple of years ago. Jacqueline, I know you're also a fan of this podcast. Uh, do you have anything that you really like about it? I really like all of it. So just listen. I've listened to it a couple of times. I listened to it as it was coming out every Friday morning. So, yeah, it, it's really good. I love all of the conversation that conversation that he has with um, Blagojevich's wife. It's interesting to hear that side of side of things. I think Rod Blagojevich was by far the worst governor in Illinois history. If you read a book that was written by Chicago Tribune reporter Jeff Cohen, it is just incredible how such a stupid individual could gain so much power. Like, I don't use the term stupid to describe politicians often, but I really do believe Rod Blagojevich was, was, was really not that smart of a person, but just had the emotional intelligence to advance in Illinois politics. But with that aside— And also he had a— this is covered in the podcast, but he had a powerful father-in-law. Who Very was much part so. Of the, but, the Chicago machine. But, but, but let me. My feelings about his terrible governance aside, I thought 14 years, even though he clearly committed crimes, was too long. It was always bothersome to me that he got more years in prison than former Illinois Governor George Ryan, who you could argue was responsible for the deaths of children because he mismanaged the Secretary of State's office so badly that people that didn't deserve to get licenses got licenses and caused horrific accidents. And I believe that George Ryan was only in prison for six years due to bribery charges. And as an Illinois native, having governors continually go to jail is embarrassing. And there's a lot of things about Illinois politics that are embarrassing, but there are also a lot of things about Illinois politics that, we, that as Illinois natives, we should be proud of. I mean, we have elected racially diverse people to statewide office. We've elected the, the first black president in Barack Obama. And there's a lot of things about Illinois politics that I think are laudable that get lost in the shuffle due to complete morons like Rod Blagojevich. <laughs> Jacqueline, do you have anything to add? I mean, Jason sums it up pretty well. Again, yes. I mean, anytime you talk to people about Illinois politics, they always lead with how many governors do you have in jail, right? So it is embarrassing. Rod Blagojevich was, you know, one the first Democrat elected in, in decades. I think it was 30 years. Um, and then he just did a horrible job. He lost the support of his party um, when the 
the House voted to impeach him, it was a rare a rare show of bipartisanship. It was I think it was 114 to one was the vote. Um, so, you know, he had no support from anyone in the state. Um, I do tend to agree with Jason in thinking that 14 years was a very long time. And it wasn't like he was serving his sentence where he could, you know, where his kids could easily visit him or his wife could easy, easily visit him. Um, he hadn't seen his, his children or his family in years. And, you know, again, as Jason said, he's charged with conspiracy to commit mail and wire fraud and solicitation of bribery, selling um, uh, U.S. Senator Barack Obama's Senate seat when he um, was elected president. But again, it is embarrassing. And if you do listen to the Public Official A podcast, you'll get to hear some of Blagojevich on the wiretapes or yeah, on the tapes that the FBI was listening to where, you know, he's attempting to hold up money for a children's hospital uh, uh, if the CEO doesn't, you know, cough up some money. So it's not like Blagojevich was a good guy and you'll get to hear that throughout the podcast. So hopefully, again, as Jason said, he'll just kind of fade into the background and we can forget about him. I will say before we sign off, one thing that Rod Blagojevich did do is pave the way for other profane criminals like now incarcerated St. Louis County Executive Steve Stanger. Yeah, the the similarities <laughs> between Steve Stanger and Rob Blagojevich are are very interesting. Even I would say they're like relative humble beginnings, right? Uh, one of the one of the selling points of Rob Blagojevich was he was a, a immigrant's child, and he like sort of rose to this great stature. All right, well that's it for our podcast this week. Uh, I want to start out by asking, Jacqueline, where can people find you on Twitter? At Driscoll NPR. And Jason? Jay Rosenbaum. We'd like to thank our politics editor, Fred Ehrlich, and our executive editor, Shula Newman. You can find all of our content at stlpublicradio.org. Until next week, so long. What you need to do is be thankful for the life you got, you know what I'm saying? Stop looking at what you ain't got. Start being thankful for what you do got. Let's get to him, baby girl. Hey, hey, that's right. Okay, hey, 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 hey.